Greetings, and indeed, salutations. I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And welcome back to the Silence is Golden podcast. Season 2. Season 2 for your home of for silent film. Bryce, welcome back. Huzzah! Huzzah. Uh, for those of you who are, follow our Twitter, you may have seen, of course, an announcement for this season back in the spring, and then <laughs> uh, then summer happened. Uh, I moved. Uh, life in general intervened. So we are finally, finally back, though, for season two. Uh, and this season, we are wanting to take a journey looking not just at our favorite silent films, but at some of the great actors and actresses who graced the silent screen. Uh, we're going to start this journey through these collections of stars with none other than our old friend, Lon Chaney. The man with a thousand faces. This is actually our second Lon Chaney film we've done here on the show. We did uh, Phantom of the Opera last year, which was a great movie. It's a uh, fantastic and a classic. Uh, but we are now back to uh, revisit Lon Chaney, The Man with a Thousand Faces, with his uh, film from 1923, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And kind of like the last one, this there is a modern adaptation of the same book uh, from which this movie was derived that we are all very familiar with. Um, in this case, it's the Disney animated film, uh, plus the Broadway adaptation of that, uh, that I think most folks are familiar with but there are some very distinct differences between the two and i and we'll definitely mention those as we go through indeed well Bryce, why don't you start by just telling us of course a bit summarize for us what went down in the hunchback of notre dame okay well as i said you know, we're working from the same source material as a movie that we are uh very familiar with uh, but that does come with some differences. Uh, but it does revolve around the, the Church of Notre Dame, and the, uh, and a big part of that is the Festival of Fools happening out in front of it. Um, and, of course, our main character is Quasimodo, uh, who is played by Lon Chaney Sr. And we'll talk more about it uh, earlier, but, of course, Lon Chaney Sr. is known for his incredible makeup work. Uh, and Brett will talk about this more in a little bit, but... Look up some pictures of him, and you'll see how this grotesque face that he creates is capable of both incredible sympathy and anger and horror. Uh, it's really a, a fantastic job. Uh, but Quasimodo is looking down from above. Uh, from He's the bell ringer of Notre Dame. Unlike the Disney movie, he doesn't really want to be a part of the world. He actually has a lot of bitterness toward normal folks at the beginning of this, as he looks down on the festival. Um, but we're also quickly introduced to uh, how uh, King, Louis, King Louis the Eleventh doesn't like the festival. There's a king of beggars uh, who had, uh, who's a, a Roma. And I'm going to try and use the word Roma, even though if you watch the movie, they do use the word gypsy, which is uh, not the preferred name for Roma. Uh, there is a steely-eyed priest, uh, and he is, the priest does have a brother. The brother's not very spiritual, but the brother is also kind of Quasimodo's boss. And Quasimodo, in the first, he's mocking people, he's jumping around, as I said, he doesn't really have a lot of fondness for the people below him. 
but he does actually eventually work his way down the building to the festival. Uh, there's actually some really great stunt work that goes with that going up and down the building a couple different times in the movie. Um, and this is, of course, when we meet Esmeralda, uh, who is the Roma. She seems very innocent. Um, she, she's not the social, uh, the sultry sult, uh, uh, social activist that we see in the animated film. Um, we're also introduced to a madwoman uh, who doesn't like Esmeralda or any of the Roma because her daughter had been kidnapped by one as a kid. Um, but as all these things are swirling around, of course, just like any other time, Quasimodo is made the king of fools. Why? Because he looks grotesque and crazy. So, and this isn't really a dramatic moment. It kind of just happens. Um, and Esmeralda does dance very famously uh, at this moment. The king of beggars is a guy named uh, Chopin. And that is, uh, and he is Esmeralda's foster father. Now, we are introduced early on to Phoebus. He's the captain. He's made captain of the guard at the Bastille. Um, and shortly after we're introduced to Phoebus, we go back to the Festival of Fools, where Esmeralda meets Quasimodo for the first time. And she really is disgusted by him, which he has a fairly grotesque face, so it kind of it makes sense um, that that would be her first reaction. Uh, Phoebus, and then we're kind of go back and forth with... Um, this is a movie that jumps around a lot from scene to scene. Uh, you're never really in one place for too long. Phoebus is not as virtuous a person as we see in the Disney movie. He, in fact, has a fiancé um, who he clearly cheats on a lot. And he sees Esmeralda, and he thinks she's beautiful very quickly. Um, you're saying Disney sanitized a film? I know. Shocking. Gasp. Uh, Jahan, who is the equivalent of Frollo... Uh, in this movie, uh, sees Esmeralda as well, and he is very quickly lusting after her. In fact, he orders Quasimodo to go kidnap her. So that is how Esmeralda and Quasimodo really, really genuinely meet, is this attempted kidnapping. Phoebus stops it, um, and Quasimodo is arrested. And he's going to be actually put up in the street. He's going to be flogged uh, for his crime. And while this is happening, we're also introduced to the Court of Miracles. Again, there's a lot of the things we saw in the Disney movie are all, all here. So um, both of these are, in a way, very similar adaptations of the book. Um, but the Court of Miracles, Chopin, um, Esmeralda's father, is actually the ruler of that court of, the, of scam artists and, uh, and petty criminals. Um, but Phoebus, after saving us, as I said, he, he's smitten by her, and he actually takes her out. He, But it's made very clear, Phoebus is smitten by her, but she, it's just because she's another pretty face. Esmeralda, on the other hand, is smitten with him, and thinks it's a dream come true. And this is the moment where you realize Phoebus is not as shallow and terrible a human being. When she says that a fortune teller once said a noble captain would be would woo her and would whisk her away... Phoebus feels terribly guilty and backs off. Um, he's not going to take advantage of that dream, but he still does. He still is smitten by her, though. He, in, a, in a way, it kind of makes him uh, more in love with her and actually in love with her. Um, 
Esmeralda goes back home, realizes that there's an execution about to happen in the Court of Miracles, and she stops it. Esmeralda is uh, kind of a pure soul through this entire thing. Um, and then, as as, uh, uh, as Quasimodo is being flogged in the, pub, uh, in, in the public square, Esmeralda is also the one who gives him grace and puts a shirt on over his back. Um, and intervenes with her grace, which also brings the priest in, who gives him grace as well, and Quasimodo uh, is freed and sent back to the church. Um, Phoebus can't stay away from Esmeralda, brings her as a date to a big party. Um, Chopin does not like this. What are you doing with the guard? We're, you know, the we're the Roma. What, what are you doing there? Um, and Esmeralda, though, wants to say a last farewell at Notre Dame. She doesn't think the thing with her and Phoebus are going to work necessarily. Uh, so she's going to try, but she wants to see him one last time. And they're reunited. It's just such a this big, happy moment. Quasimodo walks in on them as he's lighting candles on the altar. Um, Phoebus doesn't know what to think of him, really, but Esmeralda is very kind at this point. She's kind of come to see Quasimodo as a genuine soul as well. Um, and Esmeralda, in, in, as this conversation is happening, wants to try, uh, tries to let Phoebus go. And Phoebus doesn't want to go. But while Phoebus's back is turned, the evil Jahan steps in and stabs him in the back and then kidnaps Esmeralda. And everyone thinks that, well, Excuse me, I'm a little ahead of myself. He frames Esmeralda, and then he offers her basically the chance, kidnaps her and basically offers her the chance, you get to be alive as long as you submit to me. And this is, of course, terrifying. In fact, he really does try, um, she refuses this, um, and... Uh, he definitely tries to rape her at one point is I, I think exactly is really what happens. Um, however, as all this is happening, also the Roma, the, the gang from the court of miracles uh, comes at the church um, and tries to storm the church. Cause that's where Esmeralda was being kept and Quasimodo now has to defend the church. So we're starting to he head to the kind of climactic battle. There's again, some great stunt work in this scene. Um, and Esmeralda, uh, again, Esmeralda rejects his, uh, Jahan and Quasimodo jumps into the, uh, into a big fight and the military shows up and drives the rioters from the church and Quasimodo, who thinks he saved Esmeralda realizes she's missing, realizes Johan has yet come again and uh, has tried to kidnap and rape her again. And big fight happens. They kill Jahan. Uh, Q attacks him by uh, 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 Jahan next Quasimodo. Quasimodo throws stuff at him. He eventually throws him off the wall. So goodbye, uh, Jahan. But uh, Quasimodo is injured in that fight, and Phoebus and Esmeralda are reunited, just like in the movie. But unlike the movie, 
Quasimodo dies. His last act is ringing uh, essentially wedding bells, but bells of happiness for Phoebus and Esmeralda. And the priest prays over Quasimodo's body, and that is the end of the movie. A very bittersweet ending uh, to a big epic film, uh, which is something I think we always kind of, we saw this in the first season. We think of silent movies as not being big movies, but they really do oftentimes happen in really epic scope. Yeah, and and this re- really is one of the great epics and blockbusters of the silent era. Just for inflation, it remains one of the top-grossing films of the era. Uh, the and let's you know let's talk about that a bit because the the they had to build for this film a scale model of the Notre Dame, and it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, and it was a nine-acre set. Dang. So, like, this was a huge production, incredibly detailed. If you look at uh, the, if you look at the famous features of Notre Dame, uh, they are replicated in this film on a lot in Hollywood, within in great detail. So, this is an incredibly epic film that's just uh, that a lot of detail was in, went into. Uh, Lon Chaney secured the rights for the film from uh, from Victor Hugo's. Uh, estate i presume i victor hugo i believe was dead by this point so um don't quote me on that he might have actually been alive i say that i feel he might have lived into the 20th century no no i'm sorry i'm thinking dostoevsky uh big small 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 difference you know different name different nationality yeah so so close to the same person big uh, big books that were clearly written uh that uh, uh were very detailed written uh but anyway point is uh, Lon Chaney secured the rights for this, and he actually threatened he would film it abroad if he had to. Now, he never had to. This film was going to be worth a bunch. Everyone knew that this was going to be an epic. Universal was like, this must be one of ours. So this was going to happen, and he was uh, Lon Chaney had a great deal of creative control uh, of this production. He was already, even though this is actually two years before Phantom, his other great iconic role, uh, he was already a household name and a force to be reckoned with in Hollywood. And you know, even though the studio system is is forming, um, I don't know if it's in its full it hasn't gotten to its full glory yet, but it is showing you that even uh, that early on, if you could be a big enough name and had enough willpower, like Lon Chaney had, um, you could control your career. In the films you made in a way that maybe by the I, I certainly would say by the 40s or 50s uh, it was uncommon for actors to have that much control over mm-hmm. their creative output yeah uh but he but he did indeed and so and um you know he was among the people who was insisting they had to build this set in the level of detail they did uh and it really and these are decisions that really paid off as you can see in the scope of them this is a, this is ultimately a unrequited love story and an unrequited love triangle. Lots of people are in love with Esmeralda. Uh, she's only in love with one person in this yeah. film, uh, but she gets jostled around by that. This seems to be something of a theme in Lon Chaney's life, uh, or in, in his movies. Uh, after all, uh, Family Opera is another unrequited yeah. love story. I, I would argue here that um, Quasimodo is not necessarily. 
he's not romantically in love with Esmeralda in this adaptation. I, I would yeah. I, I would is. say he is he is taken with her. Um, he definitely wants to be liked by her, but it seems to me that it's more on the level of a, he he wants to have a human connection with mm. her that he hasn't had with anyone else for a very long time. And I don't necessarily think it's romantic. Well, even if it's not, there are other people who do also want Esmeralda. That is 100% true. Uh, this is, this is Jahan, we're looking at you, you dirtbag. Yes, exactly. So, uh, I mean, so regardless of how you think, there are many people who in some way desire Esmeralda. Uh, that said, of course, uh, Quasimodo is not going to win out on that story either way. He, Esmeralda is a pure soul. She has sympathy for him, but he is still the hunchback of Notre Dame. He is made to look grotesque and all these things. And the grotesqueness is achieved by Lon Chaney. Uh, Lon Chaney, of course, as we already said, he is famously known as the man with a thousand faces. His his work and his, his costuming is famous in cinema history. Uh, last season, we talked about how he created the famous look of the family opera, which involved, like, hook, hooking up his nose and... Uh, distorting his face with make uh, with makeup and wax. Uh, here, this with this fa other famous uh, look of his as Quasimodo, he was able to achieve the deformities mostly using wax. That was uh, to build up portions of his face, uh, using paint to create shadow, and he had a twenty pound object that he had on his back to create the effect of the hump. Uh, which makes the acrobatics he does, he does a fair bit of jumping around mm -hmm. and things even more impressive. He's added 20 pounds to himself in this. He also... He scales down the building, um, mm -hmm. I think it's twice. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, now I don't know, I'm sure, I'm sure he did not scale down the building on the lot in the kind, uh, with, uh, death, at, at death defying as it looks on screen. You wouldn't risk one of the biggest names in Hollywood making him climb down your scale model of Notre Dame. I feel like he's a little bit like the Tom Cruise of his day, though. He would say, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm going to strap myself to an airplane and let's go. Maybe. Who knows? But either way, so that's his... Uh, so that uh, that was how he recreated these looks. Uh, he also, though, could barely speak with this makeup, which, given that Quasimodo is said to be uh, deaf and mostly blind, that's, frankly, really makes the effect even more. He can't Also, it's a silent film. Also, <laughs> but this makes it difficult to communicate on set so like he really can't speak but on the other hand he also has somehow despite the fact he has all this makeup he manages to make it incredibly expressive mm -hmm. uh he's often forlorn tragic uh you can see anger and sadness in and his you face you can see kindness and kindness you can see that he is enraptured by esmeralda mm -hmm. you can see that he's hurt by the jeers of the crowd so this is an uh, so it's an incredibly emotive makeup, despite the fact that it's intentionally grotesque and deformed. Mm -hmm. uh, the set it's uh, the set itself, like we mentioned, uh, is a scale model. Then that's what uh, then that's what the whole uh, what all of this is based around. So it's an epic in the sense of the grandeur of the setting, but it all happens in a fairly small area. Uh, but this set, the set is one of the finest I've, I've seen in silent film. It really does rival, like, uh, Metropolis mm -hmm. in terms of uh, 
the scale of construction of mm-hmm. of singular sets. And one one of the things, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's re- so it's really just an incredible masterpiece in that way, and in the intricacy of intricacies of its story. i um, Bryce, you and you went through the details of it. I mean, this is a fairly detailed uh, story with lots of backstabbing, lots of different parts and characters who interact with each other in different ways. So they really set out to tell a complex story, yeah. uh, and they very much succeeded. One of the things, and we we talked about this before, Sharon. You you've alluded to it. Uh, you. Uh, is the depiction of the gypsy in the film. I think something I think we need to discuss. Yeah, it's not. It it's this. It is. It's not a good portrayal, and it's not something yeah. that has aged well in the film. And we're some. And in the U.S., we get somewhat a separation of this because there, um, while there are Roma Americans, uh, there just aren't a lot of them. In Europe, there are a lot of Roma uh, who have been discriminated against. They were one of the victims of the Holocaust. One of the groups of people were victims of the Holocaust. Um, but a lot of the parts of the discrim- of the very common discrimination against them, um, most Americans aren't familiar with, such as the word gypsy. Um, throughout American film, uh, I mean even recently um we very commonly use the word gypsy but if you're in europe gypsy would be a slur mm-hmm. um and so well, that's why i've tried to use the word roma uh, while i was giving the summary but the other thing is that that means that we will use tropes that we've got from european author in this case you know this is a french author uh victor hugo you know we'll take these things that not realizing necessarily the depths of uh, of discrimination within the storytelling uh and we'll use them like we talked about this before we started recording the wolfman uh uses roma as kind of a set piece there's nothing there's there's nothing inherently wrong with i mean one of the guys does turn out to be a werewolf but it's a tragic he's a tragic he's a good man his mother or wife it's not clear in the film i think mother i think she's calls him my son yeah uh his mother is a is a protagonist is a good character in the Mm -hmm. movie but they're they are you know they are prop they're cultural props in the story mm-hmm. uh and that is and that of course is his son lon cheney jr is in that film lon cheney senior though is in a film that's filled with negative stereotypes yeah uh active active harmful uh portrayals of uh, as you as you pointed out uh esmeralda is kidnapped as a child yeah i think i left uh, off at the end it turns yeah. out the mad woman who i mentioned in the very beginning mm-hmm. is actually esmeralda's mother is there's a big twist yeah, there's a twist at the end but the notion that roma would just come in and steal your children yeah. uh th- this is this is the kind of like harmful uh harmful myths and stereotypes that were used to justify discriminating against roma for centuries in europe uh and those portrayals are throughout this film in an active way and and uh, to at least be somewhat fair to our 1920s americans it was also true in the book that they were adapting mm. um so it's uh something roma have had to uh, unfortunately been having to fight for quite a long time mm-hmm. and are still fighting against today yeah so that that's it is one of the it's one of the unfortunate parts of the film uh for what is otherwise this great epic uh they retained from the book much of the uh much of that uh harmful i'm not sure how you would avoid making yeah i'm not really sure how you would avoid it you don't um, have to have the storyline about well, the, Esmeralda the, the, being kidnapped for that one part, yes that part but the 
the fact that the Court of Miracles is a bunch of scam artists and, and thieves and murderers yep. um, is a uh, very essential uh, part of mm-hmm. of who that. Though they're not inherently are. Roma, they're just thieves. Oh, most of them are from the uh, festival uh, mm-hmm. festival fools, and which is heavily mm-hmm. implied to be heavily, yeah. any of the Roma. Fair enough. The uh, but either way, it's I mean the the film made the film made choices. Yes. Uh, and they did not have to make those choices. You didn't have to make it heavily implied that the court of thieves is Roma. Uh, you didn't have. You didn't have to have Elsmerelda be ki- have a story now, side story of a C plot that's not super essential to anything yeah. else in the story of her being kidnapped by Roma as a baby. Right, I, but those are calculations I think that we would make today that 1920s Americans weren't going to make. Uh, that's still not great. Though. No, no, no. It's just what it is. I mean, as and anyone who's watched Hollywood, even in this. And we are in the silent era. This is perhaps one of the worst periods in which Hollywood was actively racist. Yes. Uh, this is the age of Birth of a Nation, a film we will never discuss on this film we beyond not, saying yeah. it's bad. Um, uh, but I mean, go nineteen, you know, Disney movies. Yeah, you, know, you get even in this, you know, Disney movies are, are uh, early Disney movies are filled with a lot of tropes um, that they definitely want us to ignore um, mm-hmm. today. So. Um, Hollywood. It, it took Hollywood a very long time to start being aware of the damage they were causing by using these tropes. Um, and so, when we look back in silent films, we're going, especially in American silent films, we're going to see those. Uh, very unfortunately. Yeah. And we'll we'll eventually watch films from uh, from people who are not uh, part of that majority. Uh, we've. Uh, the race, the race films of the era are films by black artists mm. and fantastics, and we do plan to get to those in good time as well. Um, it's probably the, a season. That's one of our season three goals. We're, we're, yep, we're, we're, we're working on putting together what films we want to do for the next season. Uh, we have a few of those films picked out. Uh, the so I, I, I think that I, I, yes, I think it's a different time and place is always a thing we can talk about in the past, but it's also only a defense to so, so much. Uh, I want to circle back, though, from that discussion back to Lon Chaney. Uh, after all, our, our focus this season is on these great actors. Yeah. We want, we want to, we're, we are chosen these films because of who stars them. Lon Chaney is unquestionably one of the greats. Uh, he had he actually before this film the film uh, one of the films that really turned him into Hollywood royalty was a film called The Outlaws in which he did some of the same thing but he also plays both the hero and the villain one of his, his one of his characters kills him him kills the other character uh, by the end of it so uh, and then of course we're gonna he goes on to do Phantom which is another thing another um, you know role which required enormous amount of makeup and um, deforming himself and another mm-hmm. film. And I cannot remember which one it is. He like dislocates his leg to create a limp. Yep. And then the day, whenever he was done, he would just pop it back in. Yeah, uh, his tolerance for pain apparently is un- is mind-bogglingly high. Um, and so you have that kind of physicality, but it, this also shows off his. Um, you know the stunts he did in this movie. Uh, we mentioned earlier that he 
climbs, you know, or he scales down the, the church. Um, and if you uh, saw the trailer we had on my YouTube channel, um, if you were not following me on YouTube, that's jbryceodom underscore author. Uh, but we had a trailer for season two and actually had that clip of him jumping down uh, by ropes uh, from the top of the building to the bottom. Uh, and it's really impressive stunt work. And so it wasn't just makeup. Um, it was the full body being involved in his, his acting. Yeah, and, and that's a kind of physicality uh, that is so necessary, I think, to silent film. You have you can't get away you can't you can't create your ideas through sound so you have to create it through your physical ability. He of course famously does his face, but he also does it with how he moves and how he how he performs on sets. Like that that scale of physicality is so key to it. And we're gonna see that again. We're gonna talk about Buster Keaton later this year and the, the master of physical comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, his his comedy is built on that ability to. To do to do things like I mean, there's the famous scene of a uh, of a barn falling falling over him and everything. So these like massive the the physicality uh, necessary and the attentiveness to what your body says on screen mm -hmm. is so important to silent film. And Lon Chaney just really is the master of that. Every move he makes feels intentional. Yeah, um, it, I think just and again, we could hammer this point home you know, all the live long day, but his, what always separates him from, he does all of that, uh, his, his stunt work, his, his physical movement on screen, um, he does all of that as well as everyone else, and then he throws on top the fact that he willingly turns himself into other things, um, whether, uh, if, no matter how much pain and discomfort that causes, he commits himself, uh, through his makeup processes, um, you know, so deeply that he right he raises himself up to another level. Yeah, and that and that I th think highlights the point. He is the one who did that. There were no mm -hmm. makeup artists helping him do this. Uh, he did. He created his costumes. He created his makeup to transform himself physically into these characters. Other people had to do it. No one, I think, can ever be said to have done it as well as he did. Mm -hmm. I think that's 100% true. Well, the with that, I think we are we're coming here uh, to time. I think we've had a great discussion here about Lon Chaney, about Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, Bryce, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, that if you haven't watched this movie, uh, this is uh, – we're recording this here in October, so hopefully you'll hear it somewhere around Halloween. Um, and – this is a movie that you absolutely uh, would be great during Halloween season uh, if you have not seen it before. So highly recommend watching it. It's uh, the scope of it is something I think that's uh, difficult to communicate in in words. And at the end of the day, like all good silent films, you just have to go watch it. Absolutely, and for uh, you know, there are of course all sorts of materials out there if you want to learn more about Lon Chaney. There is a uh, even a, a Golden Age biopic. Uh, of him called the man of a thousand faces uh with, with cagney with Cag that's right uh cagney uh uh plays the title role so uh there's if you want to go see him there are more more films out there phantom of the opera the outlaws and of course this the hunchback of Notre Dame. 
Uh, so Bryce, where can they find you? All right. So uh, you can find me at jbryceodom.com, uh, and then I'm on social media, jbryceodom on Facebook, and YouTube and Instagram are both jbryceodom underscore author. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter at SilentGoldPod. Uh, until next time, I, I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And we'll talk to you later. Thank <laughs> you.